Before we begin chapter 2, Mishnah 18, I want to make two quick announcements. We just started a new cycle of the Torah. This past uh, week was Parshas Barashas. And if people are interested in this new year to get a, a New Year's resolution to study the Torah again, I am doing a Parsha podcast for the third year running. It's an all-new Parsha podcast series. I'm going through the entire Parsha every week. Uh, it spended a tremendous amount of time and research to try to get as m- much of a complete picture into the Parsha every week. If you're interested in that, check out the Parsha podcast. There is a link in every in, in every description and on the website, rebelobi.com. Put it on iTunes, Parsha podcast. If you're interested to learn about what the Parsha says each week, you could find that there. Uh, in addition, please God, we're going to be launching soon a new podcast a Jewish question and answer podcast. Ask any question. It could be in a philosophical question, a Jewish ritual question, a question about mitzvos, a question about theology, whatever it is. We're going to assemble those questions. Email them to me, rabbiwalbi at gmail.com, if you want it to be included in, a, in an episode of the Jewish, uh, I don't have the name for it. We're looking for still for a name, I guess, Jewish question and answer podcast, whatever that uh, uh, yet to be titled podcast. So if you're interested in that, uh, if you have a question that you think maybe other people have or a question that's been darting you for some time or it's just something you're curious about, send it to me and it hopefully will be included in a future episode of that podcast. So let me know about that. Okay. So chapter 2, Mishnah 18. I'll read it quickly and then we'll go through it bit by bit. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says, again, we are dealing with the five students of Rabbi Yochanan Matzakai. We're at the end of the first century of the Common Era, the great sages. This is Rabbi Shimon. Uh, he's a little bit less famous than the rest of his colleagues, the rest of the ones that we've studied before. There's very little told about him in the Talmud and the Mishnah. But here we're told his teaching, and it's as follows. He says, You should be very meticulous, very careful in reading the Shema and in prayer. And when it says prayer, it typically means the Amidah prayer. When you pray, don't pray. When you pray, don't pray by making your prayer a routine. Don't make it a tedious, habitual prayer. Rather, but rather, it should be a request for compassion and a supplication before the omnipresent. Shenemar, as it says, quotes a verse. For gracious and compassionate is he, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and relenting of punishment. And the third clause, the final idea, Don't be considered a wicked person before yourself. Don't view yourself as a wicked person. So these three ideas that we're told, number one, to be careful in the recitation of the Shema and the prayer. Number two, when we pray, what kind of prayer is appropriate? Not one of routine, of habit, of going through the motions, of paying lip service to God. Rather, it's a more genuine request of compassion and supplication before God. And finally, don't view yourself as a Russia, as a wicked person. That's not the appropriate way to view yourself. So the first question we have to ask is, why does the Mishnah, why does it highlight particularly recitation of the Shema, the Kriya Shema, and prayer? There's a lot of things that we do, a lot of mitzvahs that we do, 
that could be things that we can be told, you know, don't be lax in it, be very careful, be meticulous about it, be fastidious about it. Why these two in particular? So a few answers. First of all, is that these are said quite commonly. The prayer is said three times a day. The Shema is said at a minimum of twice a day. These are things that we are encountering on a very regular basis. And therefore, it's likely, because we're so accustomed to them, it's likely for us to not view them with the requisite amount of reverence. And therefore, we're warned, particularly about these things that we say so often, we recite so frequently, you may kind of get calloused to the meaning behind these mitzvot, these prayers, don't, because they're very important. And especially once we learn about what these mitzvot are, what the Shema represents, what the prayer represents, it's fitting that we're given this warning not to treat it with, uh, with, with, um, not, not to be disrespectful, not to accord the proper honor, not to be flippant about the Shema and the prayer. The Shema in Talmudic parlance is called Kabbalas al Malchus Shemaim, the acceptance of the yoke of heaven. The relationship that we have with God, we're told many times, is like children to a father. Alternatively, it's like servants to a master, to a king. It's both. There's love of God, there's fear of God. There is a, like a special intimate relationship, and then there's one of dread, of fear, that we're talking to creator of heaven and earth, king of kings. The yoke of heaven. Yoke is a term that's used for animals plowing. It's a term of submission. The Shema is about submitting oneself to God. And it almost embodies the relationship that we're supposed to have with God. And therefore, of course, it's very important. We shouldn't neglect it. Prayer. What's prayer about? Prayer, again, is about man acknowledging that man needs God for everything. For prosperity, for health, for long life. For everything that you want hinges upon God. So again, it's this idea that the proper relationship of man and God is embodied in these two things, in the Shema and in prayer. And therefore, it's important for us to treat it, treat them with respect, and we should be careful and meticulous with it. And the commentaries also point out that a lot of the important themes of Jewish philosophy are highlighted in the Shema. So, for example, the commentaries note that if you look at the Ten Commandments, you can find all ten of the Ten Commandments in the three portions that comprise the Shema. So in addition, the belief of one God, just some of them, the fear of God, love of God, the idea of martyrdom, of being, of forfeiting your life for God, of accepting God as the ultimate truth in your life, studying Torah, doing the mitzvos, believing in the divinity of the Torah, uh, believing in God's oversight, God's ability to dispense reward and punishment, both in this world and in the next world, of rejecting the seductions of the Yetzer Hara, to not capitulate to its whims, all those ideas, all those themes we hit upon every day, multiple times, when we recite the Shema. And therefore, these two factors, number one, that we are so used to saying it, we could say it in our sleep maybe, number two, that they're so important, these are the conditions that encourage the great sage to 
encourage us to not be lax, to be very meticulous in these things. In addition, prayer. The one word in the Amidah prayer, in the Shemun Esther prayer, the one word that is said more than any other word is the word Ata, which means you. We're talking to God like we talk to people, like you're talking to a king, which is just an astonishing thing. Like we have the red telephone with direct access to the Almighty, and we're addressing him, you, 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 you. You give us this, you give us that, you give us that. We ask you for this, we praise you for that. We acknowledge that this comes from you, from you. It's an unbelievable thing and should not be squandered and it should not be viewed improperly. In addition, the commentaries point out that there's other special ideas about this mitzvah. So, for example, there's rigid timetables for this mitzvah. We know that the tefillin, we only, we only wear tefillin during the day. When's the day? The day begins at dawn and ends at dusk. Roughly 12 hours. The Shema is also said in the morning, but there's a very short time span when you're allowed to say the Shema from this point to that point. And the prayer as well. Each prayer is defined to a very fixed time. The morning prayer is at this time, from this time to that time, afternoon this time to that time, evening prayer that time for that time. Again, it's trying to teach us this idea that we have to be very careful about it. In addition, these are the only two prayers that you have to have concentrate when you say them. In fact, if you don't say it with concentration, you might have to repeat it. So, again, these factors show that these prayers, the Shema and the Amidah prayer, are different, and therefore we have to be encouraged to be aware of that and be fastidious, meticulous in our observing of those uh, of these prayers. The next thing we're told is that when we pray, what's the proper mode of prayer. It's one of re- of supplication, of requesting from God, not one of, oh, this is our routine and we do this and we do this every day and we're like robots and we just act, we just say, we just behave in a habitual, rote manner. And all the commentaries uh, bring the Talmud that talk about it. Prayer should not be a burden you shouldn't pray quickly to try to get rid of it, to just, oh, when can I finally be done with it? I always say that the in it's quite common in many synagogues that they have the afternoon even prayer right next to each other. Like, oh, let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's get rid of them. Uh, oh, we let, you know, let's try to bunch as many of our responsibilities into one, which I'm not condemning that because I'm a uh, guilty as charged. Uh, but at least the principle... We're told over here that we should try to strive to make it meaningful. I know my grandfather of blessed memory, he would never do that. He would always pray the afternoon prayer and the evening prayer separately, which, again, if it was something that you valued and you cherished, you wouldn't say, oh, let's get them over. You know, we have to do these two things. Let's, uh, lunch and dinner. Oh, we got to do them. Okay. Let's just try, let's, let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's just have lunch and then right away dinner so we can get it over with. No one does that because you value it. If you value prayer as, as we're trying to strive to value prayer more and more, it becomes more of a of, of a meaningful activity, not just a ritual to be to get over with and be done with. I remember this is an experience that I've discussed with other people. Sometimes you forget the evening prayer, and you're half sleeping, and then you remember it. Uh, once I was talking over with a friend of mine, he's like, "If it, you know, if you're in yeshiva dormitory and you guys went on a trip, and everyone's half sleeping, and someone's like." 
Oh, we forgot to dive my. We forgot to pray the evening prayer. Everyone's gonna be. Everyone's gonna be upset at that person. Oh, I was half sleeping. I gotta get up. Maybe we need to get dressed. You know that that's the attitude that we have, and here we're, we're encouraged to try to recognize the power of prayer and treat it accordingly. And uh, an alternative explanation of this idea, which I found very compelling, is that when we request something for God, we feel very good about ourselves. Look at me. I'm praying. I have a spiritual relationship with God. Look at me. So many people don't pray. I, I must be deserving of all these great things because I'm, I'm praying after all. And here we're told is that don't focus your request on your righteousness, but rather on God's benevolence, meaning that the input of prayer and the output of prayer are asymmetrical. The input is very little compared to what God does for us. And therefore, focus and dwell and ruminate on God's goodness and benevolence and magnanimity in giving us all the things, even though we don't deserve it. And that's how what you should hinge your prayer on. You attribute your prayer to God's goodness and God's benevolence and God's compassion. And one of the commentaries gives an example uh, of a rich person who wants to help the poor people but doesn't want them to feel bad or indebted, so doesn't give them charity, but hires them to do stuff. And the real objective is to give them freebies, but doesn't want to make them feel bad, so he hires them to do a job. Maybe he didn't even need the job to be done, but whatever. Let's make the person feel like they're earning it, but really, they're not really earning it. Similarly, the Almighty, we're not earning something with our prayer, but he's saying, do this, so that way I'll give you all these good stuff really for free, but to make you feel like you did some part of it. But ultimately, it's really about God's benevolence. In fact, the word, the Hebrew word for tachanunim, which is used over here in uh, in the context of uh, of requesting for compassion, the word uh, etymologically stems from the word chinam, which means free, i.e. we're getting freebies from God. And finally, we're told, don't consider yourself a wicked person. If you think you're wicked, then it won't allow you to repent. In addition, and this is a very deep psychological point, when someone views themselves as wicked, that almost, quote-unquote, permits future and further transgressions. When someone says, oh, I'm such a sinner anyhow. So all these minor sins are so trivial and so small compared to the previous sins, and that and that's okay. Well, well, I'm a sinner anyhow. I, this is what sinners do. Those kinds of justifications are very harmful because it can lead to a, uh, a death spiral, a vicious cycle where you're labeling yourself as a sinner is actually a subversive way to get that the Yetzirah does to get you to do future sins. There's a great line from the Rambam here. I'll read it in Hebrew and translate it. When a person views himself, his, him or herself, as lacking or as diminutive, as small, he won't, it won't appear significant in his eyes a, uh, a sin when he does it. And therefore, part of the repertoire of the evil to get us to sin is to make us convinced that we already are sinners, we're beyond help. We're wicked anyhow. What's the big deal? Right. Lather it on. Uh, and therefore, we're supposed to view ourselves as more positive. However, there's a certain balanced uh, self-perception that's appropriate. Because the Talmud says, don't view yourself as a righteous person. 
And the Mishnah says, don't view yourself as a wicked person. So what are you supposed to view yourself as? And so Rabbeinu Yonah says there's, there's a certain balance that is appropriate. Don't view yourself as a wicked person. Don't, because that will lead to further sins. Don't view yourself as a righteous person, because that will also lead you to further sins, because, well, I'm righteous after all. I got I got plenty of grace period. I got plenty of uh, of room here. Uh, it can lead to uh, being haughty and not being humble. Of course, that's a gateway to all kinds of sins. So what does it mean? View yourself somewhere in the middle. And then he says, he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says, you should always view yourself as exactly balanced 50-50. You're exactly halfway. You're right in the middle. And there, therefore, every action that you do is determining your identity. And therefore, if this is the one action that you have to do to decide what you will be, you're going to choose and opt to do a righteous one. Because it all comes down to this, right? This is it. This is the, the bottom of the ninth, uh, the full count, bases loaded. This is it. Everyone pays attention, right? And the Talmud goes further and says, you should view yourself as exactly balanced 50-50, and therefore your, your, your very next action will determine your, uh, your, your legacy. In addition, the whole world is exactly 50-50, and therefore your action will affect not only you, but the whole world. The fate of the world is in your hands. And therefore, your action right now matters. Whereas when someone says, I'm, I'm already wicked, my action doesn't really matter. I'm already righteous. My action doesn't matter. I'm right in the middle. My actions are very important. And taking that attitude will make sure that self-perception will lead to very good results because now your actions really indeed matter. And in addition, one of the commentaries points out that if someone believes that they're wicked, then they will give up trying to pray and forfeit the bounty that is available in prayer, because why? I'm wicked. God, of course, doesn't listen to wicked people. When in truth, we read in uh, in Tehillim and Psalms, Karov God is close to all those that call out to Him, provided that they do that with sincerity. Including in that is wicked people. But if someone says, "Oh, I'm wicked," my prayers won't help anyhow, then they won't pray. So, thus, according to that opinion, all three of these clauses have to do with prayer. Number one, to be careful in prayer. And in the Shema, number two, what kind of prayer? A prayer of requesting kindness and generosity and benevolence from God. And finally, don't view yourself as beyond beyond help. Don't view yourself as wicked and that your prayers won't yield positive results. View yourself as somewhere in the balance, somewhere in the middle. Your actions really matter and your prayer is efficacious.